everyone and welcome to the podcast of English composer Andrew Downs. My name is Paula Downs. I am Andrew's younger daughter and on today's show I am very excited to be reading the second chapter of Around the Horn by my grandfather Frank Downs. Chapter 2. This covers first piano broadcast, taking up the horn, City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra, Imminence of War, Dennis Matthews, BBC Midland Orchestra, Anderson Shelters and Gas Masks, and the Royal College of Music. My school days were in the main happy. Though not a high flyer academically, I enjoyed most subjects, though definitely not maths. English, geography and music I was very much at home with, and sport, particularly football. I was a football fanatic. I had ambitions at one period of becoming a professional. I captained the school team and we won the Town Cup in 1932 for the first time in the history of the school. Despite my interest in this branch of sport, music was always my first priority, with a rigid schedule of piano practice before going to school, during the break for lunch, and a longer period in the evening. The family had by now moved to an old detached house nearby, which though lacking many amenities had more rooms so that prolonged practice was possible without driving the rest of the family and neighbours to distraction. I had my first opportunity of performing in public when I was 11, playing the Bach F minor piano concerto with a string orchestra conducted by my brother Herbert. Several of those string players were members of the City of Birmingham Orchestra. One I recall was a young viola player named Harry Danks, who in later years, of course, became principal viola of the BBC Symphony Orchestra. I remember that concert quite vividly, but find it difficult to put into words my feelings on the platform that evening. The applause, the sea of faces, my brother shepherding me through the violin section to the piano, whispering, enjoy yourself, as I sat down at the instrument to give a piano A to the orchestra. The piano was, of necessity, awkwardly placed on the platform, requiring me to have a mirror on the piano to see the conductor. This did not worry me unduly. The only thing that did was wearing an Eton suit with a stiff white collar. Early in the 1930s, the BBC formed the BBC Midland Orchestra of around 45 players. Selected from the City of Birmingham Orchestra, they were contracted to work in both orchestras under their conductor Leslie Howard. Studio 4 in Broad Street was their home, and of that particular studio I have many memories, the earliest of which is of playing the Bach F minor concerto to Leslie Howard and Victor Helly Hutchinson during an orchestral interval. Several members of the orchestra were dotted around the studio, and it was all very informal at the time. However, as a result of this, three things happened over the next few weeks. Leslie Howard recommended me to the head of the Children's Hour programmes to appear in the Young Artist programmes. Secondly, he gave me permission to go into any performances of the orchestra, a privilege of which I took advantage as often as school commitments permitted. And finally, Victor Helly Hutchinson agreed to take me as a pupil. He was a marvellous man. Kind, generous and with unending patience. 
He also had a delightful sense of humour. I used to go for lessons either at his house or his room at the University of Birmingham where he was the music professor. The visits to his beautiful Georgian house in Frederick Road, Edgbaston were a special pleasure to me. Two things attracted me other than the actual lesson. The lovely Challon Grand Piano and the real live parrot in the corner of the lounge. Parrots have always intrigued me and there are a host of humorous stories about these wonderful birds but this one had a special ability. He was a critic. Frequently he would interrupt whilst the piano was being played. In the middle of a Bach fugue one would hear It's a crotchet! It's a crotchet! Repeated until the professor threw a dark cloth, kept for the purpose, over the cage. In a darkened cage silence would then follow. I almost felt sorry for the poor creature afterwards, though it was initially hilarious. There was great excitement at home when I received my first engagement to broadcast solos in a BBC Children's Hour programme. My brother Herbert had broadcast solos several years before. We did not, however, at that time possess a wireless and we were invited to listen by the owners of a general store opposite to our house. It seemed pure magic to hear one's own brother playing his violin ten miles away in a BBC studio. The thought that I too was going to perform on the piano gave me a great thrill. And now also the family could listen at home. We had acquired a wireless. I gained a certain overnight popularity at school when the headmaster let my fellow pupils out of school 15 minutes early so that they could get home to listen. I never quite understood why he did this. Almost all had ample time to get home by five o'clock when the programme began. However, the concession was to all appearances gratefully accepted. In those days, children's hour programmes were presented by uncles and aunties. Uncle Mac from London was a legend and each region had its particular uncle presenter. In the Midland region, they had Uncle Hugh, Hugh Morton, later to become famous in Tommy Handley's wartime ITMA, and later in BBC drama on sound and television. In the course of the next two years or so, I took full advantage of the privilege of attending BBC Midland Orchestra programmes in the studio, particularly the Friday afternoon symphony concerts, which were broadcast, if I remember rightly, from 3.45 to 5pm on the National Programme. I have to thank my headmaster, a most musically enlightened man, for allowing me to have so many free Friday afternoons from school to attend. By far the most memorable, however, was a series of the Mozart piano concertos, played by Victor Helly Hutchinson, conducted by Leslie Howard, and with narrations and introductions by Eric Blom. My brother, very much involved in all these activities, as well as playing viola in a string quartet led by Henry Holst, seemingly still had his thoughts on my future. I arrived home from school one afternoon to find lying on the table in the kitchen a very old French horn in F with an additional E-flat crook, and although I had many times expressed a fascinated interest in the instrument and had written down on manuscript passages which thrilled me in orchestral works, I did not dream that Herbert would buy one for me as a second instrument. From that day, when I produced a steady note on the F crook, I was imbued with the urge to play one, and began lessons with the principal horn of the City of Birmingham Orchestra, Walter York. My enthusiasm was unbounded. I remember going to see the film Captain Blood three times. There was a beautiful passage for solo horn in the film score, which I still remember to this day. 
the magnificent ship sailing in a fading evening light towards the horizon, and this beautiful sound of the horn accompaniment thrilled me so much that I had to write it down. Alas, I had no manuscript on the initial visit, and considerable difficulty on my second, owing to the darkness in the cinema, but I managed it on my third attempt. Looking back over this period, it must have been sheer hell for our parents. I would practice holding long steady notes for at least half an hour, and then for a rest begin piano practice, whilst other brothers would be practicing violin and cello, another had taken up singing. Remarkably, however, in the circumstances, our parents encouraged us and were very supportive. Thank God we had a detached house. Unfortunately, underlying these creative activities, there was a fear. A fear which most of the country was sharing. War clouds were gathering and Chamberlain's visit to Munich and the Munich Pact of 1938 had not convinced most people that the clouds had lifted. I remember 1938, not only for the Munich Pact in September, but also for a most remarkable performance on radio in November by a young pianist from Leamington, still in his teens, of the C minor concerto of Beethoven. He played it with the BBC Midland Orchestra from Studio 4 in Broad Street, and it was really an outstanding broadcast. His name, Dennis Matthews. Little did I realise at that time that I would in the course of the next couple of years meet him in the RAF at Uxbridge and that we would become lifelong friends. Visiting Birmingham Library, the music section became my second home, I built up my own scrapbook of horn passages of the orchestral repertoire from the excellent collection of miniature scores, copying them down if time permitted, or if not, taking them home for a day or so. I played in any band or orchestra that would have me. Most amateur orchestras were desperately short of horn players in any case, so that was to my advantage. There were some perfectly ghastly noises, not always from me, in those early days, and I remember disaster overtaking me on one occasion at a concert on a bandstand one Sunday afternoon in a park in Wensbury in the Black Country. Halfway through light cavalry overture, the solder on one of the joints of my instrument came apart and the instrument fell to pieces. On another occasion at a concert in Coventry, I was playing second horn in the beautiful horn quartet opening of Der Freischütz Overture. It should have been beautiful. When the old gentleman playing next to me had a disaster of the first magnitude, his top set of teeth fell out and shattered on the floor beside him. He gurgled, spluttered and bubbled through the first horn part, whilst the conductor, who did not seem very sane to me anyway, mouthed obscenities at us all. It was very unnerving to say the least. By 1938, I obtained my first professional engagement in a concert at the Shire Hall, Hereford, conducted by the organist of Hereford Cathedral, Dr Percy Hull. I remember being taken down to Hereford by car, driven by a bassoon player from Birmingham named Billy Clark, a lovely old gentleman who could easily have been taken for a country squire. He was always immaculately dressed and there was a certain dignity about the man, even when he took a pinch of snuff from his small silver snuff box. This was a habit in which many wind players indulged in those days. 
Billy was, I remember, most irate that day about a local newspaper which had reported a concert a few days previously. Apparently, he had played a bassoon solo, and due to a misprint, it had been reported as follows. Mr. Clark has a very facile technique, and there is no doubt that he is a first-class balloonist. I felt that in that year of 1938, I had made some progress towards becoming a professional horn player. But realistically, I knew that I needed a period of further study and had my sights set on applying to the Royal College of Music in London for a possible scholarship. Alas, political events deemed otherwise, and the idea was postponed. The threat of war pervaded the whole country, and early in 1939 it became a foregone conclusion. Anderson shelters and gas masks were being distributed to the whole population and trenches were being dug in defence manoeuvres throughout the land. Cellars were being reinforced and adapted as shelters. Our own cellar was one such and we had to knock out bricks in the basement to facilitate an escape route. On the world front, Mussolini had occupied Albania and Hitler had seized Czechoslovakia. Poland was next in line and at long last Chamberlain made a stand and together with France guaranteed their frontiers against aggression. Unemployment fell to less than a million as industry recovered through rearmament. Hitler was demanding Danzig and in August made a non-aggression pact with Stalin followed by an invasion of Poland on September the 1st. The Second World War had begun. End of chapter 2 to end this podcast episode, I'm going to play Movement 2 from Andrew Downs' Symphony No. 1 for organ, brass, percussion and strings, performed by the Czech Philharmonic Orchestra under Andre Vrabets for the Artisman label. Andrew Downs composed this symphony shortly after writing his dramatic cantata, A Child is Singing, which expresses the horrors of nuclear war. The tone of this cantata greatly influences much of the mood of the symphony. There is a feeling of emptiness, of the unknown and of wandering in time and space. The feeling of meandering in space comes to the fore in this second movement. There are passages of emptiness and calm, contrasting with frenzied, almost barbaric climaxes. There is a long atmospheric coda with pinpoints of sound brought together by a pulsating ostinato on vibraphone without vibrato.